Hi, this is the American Psychological Association's Division 15 podcast series on emerging research in educational psychology. My name is Jeff Green. Thanks for joining us. So, coincidentally, on the day we are recording this podcast, the Reuters Institute has released a major report on digital news, finding that throughout the world, an increasing number of people are avoiding the news entirely, with many saying that news has a negative effect on their mood or leaves them feeling worn out. Of course, the thing is, it's not really the news that is doing that. Rather, it's all the things being reported by the news and the discourse that follows that wears people out. Avoiding the news won't make those things better, but it will allow them to persist, fester, and even grow. The same can be said for educational psychology's long-standing avoidance of engagement with research and debates around the purpose of schooling. The field's silence about racism and oppression in education has only allowed those things to persist, fester, and grow. My guest today, Dr. Francesca Lopez, has certainly not been silent. She has devoted her research to informing policymakers, school leaders, and teacher educators about policies and classroom practices that can mitigate racial and ethnic inequality and social stratification. Her latest article, which is the subject of our discussion today, engages the field of educational psychology about how its absence from this work is not neutral, but rather detrimental. I'm really excited to talk to her today about those ideas. Dr. Francesca Lopez is the Waterbury Chair in Equity Pedagogy and Professor of Education in the Department of Curriculum and Instruction at Penn State University. Her research focuses broadly on the knowledge that teachers need to create anti-racist classrooms that promote the identity and achievement of marginalized students. In 2009, Dr. Lopez received the American Psychological Association Division 15's Early Career Grant, and her research has since been funded through the American Educational Research Association, the National Academy of Education and the Spencer Foundation, the Institute of Educational Sciences, and the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. She is a fellow of the American Educational Research Association and currently serves as a co-editor for the journal Review of Educational Research. Today, we're talking about Dr. Lopez's 2022 article in Educational Psychologist entitled, Can Educational Psychology Be Harnessed to Make Changes for the Greater Good? Francesca, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm thrilled to be here. So let's start here. Can you speak a little bit about why you decided to write this article with this focus? I'd be thrilled to talk about that. So initially, I was invited by APA's Division 15 to do a webinar on the issues with the anti-CRT critical race theory debates that were going around in the nation. Mm -hmm. And so I did the webinar. It received pretty good reception. Mm -hmm. And then I started hearing from the educational psychology community a lot of encouragement that I should submit a paper to educational psychologists. Mm-hmm. And I guess the rest is history. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm really glad that you did. You know, the article makes a really nice contribution, so I'm glad you submitted it. You critique the field for being silent on the social purpose of schooling. Can you help us understand what that social purpose of schooling is? Yes, I'd be happy to do that. So it's interesting because I, I think to answer that question, it might help to kind of lay out the personal struggles that I faced as an educational psychologist in the field. Um, Early on, for example, I was studying English learners and looking at policies that are detrimental to students who don't speak English at home and had been warned that I needed to be careful not to put my politics too upfront because it would make me look not objective. Mm -hmm. Um, And basically that's stemming from the fact that the study was looking at bilingual education in Texas and the very anti-bilingual policy in Arizona. So that that notion of don't be political, 
let research stand for itself, Mm -hmm. present your work as neutral and objective, had been the fabric of what I had been exposed to in my doctoral training. Mm -hmm. And it was something that I faced quite often in the field of educational psychology, Mm -hmm. but not so much in other fields in education. Mm -hmm. And so by looking at the social purpose in that particular article, what I'm arguing is basically what other scholars, especially outside of the field of educational psychology, have argued for quite some time. There is no such thing as an apolitical classroom. Mm -hmm. By avoiding discussions, we are making a political statement. Mm -hmm. And so the argument then is, what do we want our research to help inform? Mm -hmm. Is it structures that maintain the status quo? Or is it something that makes society better? And so it seems like you receive this kind of positivist message, right? Like science and educational psychology, science, quote unquote, needs to be a certain way. Um, And that aligns really well with what you argue in the paper, that it's not possible to take an apolitical stance in the work that we do. That's right. That's right. And in so doing, it, it seems like we are advocating a responsibility to make the kind of impact upon schools and upon education that we want. And you you talk in the paper about kind of current movements in the U.S. society that educational psychology maybe hasn't commented upon as much, and that has damaged our ability to enter into that conversation. So you mentioned kind of the anti-critical race theory and education movement and how it's a policy distraction tactic. Can you talk about kind of what you mean by that and what it's distracting us from? Yeah. And so the policy distraction, I I certainly didn't coin that term. And it's embedded in political science work and some, some other research looking at how political messaging is often intended to set an agenda. Mm -hmm. And that unfortunately for a lot of our history, the agenda setting has been led by efforts to distract from the actual issues facing citizens. Mm -hmm. So the notion of this anti-CRT debacle morphed very quickly. If you look at the article and you see the Google trend image that's embedded Mm -hmm. in the article, Mm -hmm. you can see an uptick when they started getting social media attention and then it kind of wanes. And then it has another uptick right before November, which we know is election season. Mm -hmm. And so there's a very concerted effort surrounding elections that's documented by, for example, legal scholar Ian Haney Lopez, that certain things are brought up in the 70s. It was sex education with Nixon. There's many, many other examples that politicians use as the the alarm setting, right? Mm -hmm. It is the thing that people then start to debate. And there's also quite a bit of difference in terms of which partisan side is arguing which thing. So a UCLA report, for example, found that conservative media was talking quite a bit about CRT, critical race theory, whereas more progressive media was remaining pretty silent about it. It it only reported it about 8% of the time. Mm -hmm. And nonpartisan media outlets reported it somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. So the agenda setting is such that you see the right, and this is the right, talking a lot about CRT, then it moved to LGBTQ, then it moved to SEL. So we start to hear these alarms, these alarms about issues that people should be concerned about that the right just so happens to have the answers to, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of distracting us from substantive issues in schools about 
students experience and how to make their experience better. It sounds like these moral panics are, are really ways to divert attention from the issues that really should be at the forefront of educational psychology. Is that a fair way of thinking about it? That is very fair. And I, and I mean, when we look at the situation we've been in for the past few years with the pandemic, schools, school leaders, teachers, they just wanted to be able to take care of the students that they had. And so now all of a sudden with these debates that introduced more issues, it was completely a distraction and very intentional as well, because it was mostly settings where there was a growing demographic of students of color that saw a lot of the the school board meeting debates, the issues surrounding CRT, whereas more suburban areas did not see that to the same extent. So it, it feels very targeted. And in your article, you have a wonderful historiographical review of kind of major events in U.S. history that connect to education or had this distracting function in education and how it pulled attention away from discussions and research into the social purpose of school. And, and you do a really nice job, and I really encourage our listeners to read your article. You do a really nice job of illustrating how educational psychology and educational psychologists were largely absent from these movements, from these discussions. I mean, wh- why do you think that is? Why, why haven't we been at the table? So one of the most interesting articles that I identified for writing that that particular paper was by Lageman. I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly. She is a historian. And I, I found it fascinating to read why, in essence, Thorndike won, right? Mm-hmm. And Dewey mm-hmm. lost. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think a large reason that we don't see educational psychologists, especially further back in history, really engaging with this is just because of how the field was shaped from mm-hmm. very early on. And not just educational psychology. Um, that particular article that I'm talking about also mentions how AERA was created by psychometricians. It was mm-hmm. a small group of psychometricians very much akin to Thorndike and his beliefs. Mm-hmm. So it, it's no accident that a field that came out of a time when science and objectivity and measurement had been part of its ethos did not see this flourishing of debates that we are seeing now with this racial reckoning, right? It's been termed racial reckoning the summer of 2020. Mm -hmm. I think that's one part of it. Mm -hmm. I think another part of it is looking historically, you know, when think tanks, first came into existence. They were generally at a time when science was highly respected, where the endeavor to use social science to make improvements in society was also generally very, very respected. And so this notion of using research, although it can sound positive, but using research for the greater good was something that was part of the goals. The danger is ignoring the fact that there has always been stratification. There has always been a type of education that is considered the standard at the silencing of many communities, right? And so part of the reason is just looking historically at how the field was shaped, was incentivized. I mean, even if we look at Thorndike and the more recent reckoning with his legacy, 
Mm-hmm. It is very, very recent that his name was taken off of one of the buildings at Columbia, that APA actually names him as a contributor to racism. Mm-hmm. This is all very recent in our history. So the context that we're living in, the things that are becoming part of the awareness of many of us is part of the reason that we're now seeing this discussed and talked about. And forcing fields to confront a history that for very long just remained the status quo. Yeah, it's it's really been fascinating to watch, for example, the American Psychological Association put out an apology for a history of racism and contributing to racism. Washington Division 15 put out a statement about racism and kind of acknowledge this moment that you illustrate really well in your article where, you know, the field could have headed more in a dewy direction. Mm-hmm more focusing on student needs and advancing all students' success. And that would require acknowledging the social stratification and the oppression that was happening. And instead, the field just took a right turn right Mm -hmm. into Thorndike. And, you know, Thorndike didn't want his graduate students in classrooms at all. Right. Right. Um, So it really does feel like the field decided not to answer the question of for whose greater good are we working? And in so doing, they did answer it. And they, they, they chose the majority. Precisely. Precisely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in the course of doing your historical review, you came across this really fascinating character that I frankly had not heard of before, Harold Rugg. And so can you talk to us a little bit about him and what you found about him? You know, I, I have to tell you, for me, what was shocking is when, when I was working on all this anti-CRT stuff, there was a curricular theorist who told me, you've got to read the work of Harold Rugg. And so sure enough, I did. And then I go into his history. It's that article that I that I mentioned. And he had been trained in educational psychology. And I was floored hmm. because I never heard of him. Right. And it's actually a tiny circle of individuals, right? It's Thorndike, it's Dewey and, and Rugg worked with Thorndike, but pivoted. And I and I found it fascinating that here's somebody, right, in the 20s who worked on measurement. And really was, I think, unsatisfied with that work and pivoted to just channel his energy into creating these series of books that then became the target of the American Legion because of the Red Scare. And I, I just find it, it's a personal interest. <laughs> so I just find it fascinating that here is a fellow educational psychologist who we didn't get to know in part because they came after him and removed his books and he became collateral damage of the attacks that tend to happen against people who do this kind of work. That all sounds really fascinating. And that historical review talks a lot about core narratives and other things that identify and illustrate this tension, right? This desire in society to pull attention away from student needs and oppressed students and towards other issues. And you you kind of walk us through that history. And then you get to, as you called it, this racial reckoning um, and that other stuff called it in 2020 and now how things are changing. And one of the things that I thought was really useful in your article was you illustrated a number of areas of scholarship that is making a contribution and is trying to push towards the greater good. Can you talk to us a little bit about what areas in educational psychology you feel are moving in a greater good direction? Oh, definitely. I think I would be remiss if I didn't start out by mentioning Jessica DeCure-Gumby and Paul Schetz's 
2014 article Mm -hmm. on race reimaging and race-focused research and the need for it. It introduces this dilemma that I believe it's, it's still the case, where when we look at articles published in the various journals focused on educational psychology, manuscripts that focus on race as a construct still remain somewhere around 1%. That's what it was in 2014. I suspect that very little has changed since then because when I looked at the articles, there have been some special issues, three in particular, but they still remain on the margins, right, as special issues. Right. Nevertheless, right, it was an incredibly important article because they mention very explicitly this need for looking at race in a particular way, not just as a variable of interest, as an independent variable, as a control variable, but looking at the context surrounding it, looking at the history, looking at far deeper reasons for stratification and lack of achievement outcomes, right? Mm -hmm. And it's no surprise then to know that Jessica DeCure Gumby has written on critical race theory, right? It's something that she has used in her own research This is incredibly important because it allows you to be able to look at the root cause for racism and subordination of race. And when you look at the root causes of something, you're far better able to then decide what do we do to remedy this versus an approach that just looks at differences, does not consider race as a construct in and of itself. And then there's interventions that might be developed that try to in a deficit perspective, give more to the communities that are in a system that is oppressive, that promotes the stratification, right? Mm -hmm. So definitely that work is incredibly important. It really set off, I think, a lot of attention. Jamal Matthews and I edited a special issue in contemporary educational psychology, Mm -hmm. looking at how different scholars focused on different areas are doing this kind of work in engineering and mathematics, looking at belonging. It was a great project to work on, specifically because it spanned kindergarten all the way through higher education and looking at this this new generation of scholarship that's being done. Mm -hmm. Of course, there's also the work by Refthi Kumar, who has been doing work with circles and publishing on culturally relevant approaches, looking at motivation from a culturally relevant lens. So we we have, and I cite many, it's not everybody, DeLeon Gray is another scholar, for example, who looks at a very explicit race-focused attention to school belonging mm-hmm. and is pretty unapologetic on the things that need to be done. So I know I've probably missed some scholars being cited in that piece. But for me, these are individuals whom I cite, whose work I think is an exemplar for what should be done in the field when we're talking about decolonizing the field, making educational psychology be able to truly address the greater good. They are each contributing to our understanding of constructs, of systems, of approaches that I think lead us to what is possible right? Instead of sustaining systems the way they are and just trying to make achievement as one outcome to be improved given a particular intervention, right? They really are talking about the systems that need to change, the training that needs to change to be able to make that happen. Yeah. And that work is really wonderful. And you made so many important points there. One of them being 
we need to get to the point where these are not quote unquote special issues, right? Right. You talked about how we really need to center these ideas and not kind of just put them in a box so that is a special issue, even though special issues are wonderful and I like them very much. And you, you also talked about how race-focused and race-reimaged work is an explicit attempt to rethink what matters in our work, right? So as you said, rather than treating race as this kind of categorical variable or control variable in a larger analysis that's really the focus, instead it really centers race and issues of racial identity, et cetera, in the work. And when that happens, you get to systems. And I'm interested, what does it look like for educational psychology to really embrace systems as a foundational aspect of education, given the field's longstanding focus on individual processing? So that is a very important question. And it's one that I've thought very deeply about, both in writing the article and just engaging in the work that I've been doing over several years. Mm -hmm. And I have a quote by Harold Rugg in my article, you know, what is going to be the nub of our theory? Is it going to be the individual or is it going to be society? Mm -hmm. I I think that's what the quote is, if I'm remembering correctly. And and for me, this question was posed in 1931. And it's still the question. Are we, as educational psychologists, more interested in sustaining systems that work for a few Or are we interested in understanding how we can make things better? And I I truly believe that. I I don't think it's hyperbole because we can see on the news now things playing out. We are at a point that I I would not have guessed we'd be um, historically. Mm -hmm. Seeing the things that are playing out with elections, seeing the things that are playing out with testimony, Mm-hmm. Seeing teachers exiting the profession because it's a crisis point for them, you know, the, the years and years of the pressures of deprofessionalization, which it's all related. And it's one of those things that at what point will we as scholars who are interested in how people learn for what to learn because they can get a better score on an assessment or to learn to help contribute to a better world, mm-hmm. right? And I and I think all around us, the need for a better world is screaming everywhere. Mm-hmm. The hope for me is that seeing so many scholars engage recently, for example, several of my colleagues here at Penn State, Karen Murphy, Alex List, that they put together a ARA conference focused on making educational psychology anti-racist mm-hmm. and brought together several people whom I've already named in discussing, like, what can the field do to do this better? Mm -hmm. That's just one example of many. I think we're seeing more and more attention to this. I have to tell you the fact that my article got published in Educational Psychologist, I'm thrilled because I never thought that that day would exist. You know, I, I never thought that the field would be embracing this moment the way it is. So I'm hopeful. Mm -hmm. There are scholars who I see being cited, leading special issues, leading handbooks Mm -hmm. that makes me think that there is hope in the future generation, you know, of scholars that we're preparing in educational psychology Mm -hmm. to really take the field in a different direction. 
I'm really pleased to hear that. And I want to be hopeful also. And I think articles like yours and the conference that you mentioned and the special issues and the continued focus, whether it's in national organizations, international organizations like American Educational Research Association, Mm -hmm. all of that is necessary to really bring to the forefront this attention for greater good that you're talking about. And I think if you take that seriously, you get to all the ideas that you have in your article. And I really encourage our listeners to take a look because, as you mentioned, you talk about race-focused and race-re-image research. You also talk about student identity research and asset-based pedagogies and all of this research that illustrates so well that you can't understand how people learn without understanding the worlds in which they live. Right. And when you take that seriously, it forces you to begin to reconcile, you know, the silence that our field has adopted and how limiting it is. And you also, you you said the word hopeful, you also make this wonderful point about how research and practice that advances the success of students who are bilingual, or when you look at ethnic studies, these kinds of initiatives have benefits for all students. And so if we want educational psychology to start training and developing the next generation of scholars who can continue this work, how do we do that? It's interesting. And I think one of the responses I have to that question is, and I've said this multiple times in the webinar, I I think I have it in the, in the implications in that article, Mm -hmm. we need to read broader You know, we need to read outside of educational psychology precisely because there has been quite a bit of work that complements educational psychology constructs. I immediately think of Angela Valenzuela's book, Subtractive Schooling, that Mm -hmm. would work beautifully in discussing motivation, in discussing things like curiosity, persistence, things that educational psychologists are very interested in, in understanding. There's quite a bit of work that has been done in the policy realm that I think is imperative for us to embrace as a field, because if we do not understand the policy world, then I think we miss an opportunity to make our work truly relevant. Mm. I'm not the first to say this. You know, David Berliner has written about this quite extensively. I think Jean Glass has as well. They're they're definitely scholars whose work I cite quite often. Mm -hmm. Being somebody who has worked in bilingual education, Jean Glass's meta-analysis with several other colleagues on the effects of bilingual education was one of the first readings that I came across as a doctoral student. Mm -hmm. I I think we need to understand policy because what, what the people I've just named have contributed is an understanding that the policy world is not inherently poised to embrace empirical research. Mm. And I think we need to understand that so that we can make use of the evidence that we generate in far more useful ways. So for example, when Berliner mentioned about all the work that he was ready to present on how to improve teacher practices and how the Reagan administration had absolutely no interest in learning about that. Mm. That is an important lesson because if policy is standing in the way or policymakers or leaders are standing in the way of truly embracing evidence, how can we as scholars who are very much 
invested in making sure that evidence, empirical evidence can inform whatever it is that we're hoping it informs, we need to be aware of the obstacles that are in place to be able to circumvent them. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I've learned in doing this work is there's quite a bit of messaging research out there hmm. that helps position researchers, those of us who work in institutions of higher education who have not had the training to work and talk to policymakers. And I'm not referring to lobbying. I'm talking about how do we share and talk about our research in ways that isn't full of jargon, right? Isn't Mm -hmm. limiting its reach to other academic audiences. And there are entities available to support that kind of work. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also messaging research that tells us the kinds of things we should not be doing when we're trying to share a message. I, I think all of this is incredibly important because what we've seen that has been detrimental to students has had many decades and many resources to be able to get to the common lexicon, right? It's, it's why people are now shutting down, as you had introduced earlier today, and not wanting to listen to more news because so much of it is so negative. But we need to adapt and take that evidence to be able to share our research. And I say that because one of the things that we can see in the anti-CRT, anti-LGBTQ, any, you know, enter the the fabricated dilemma here. (laughs) They do not position empirical research as the rationale for why they are pushing a particular policy. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And this is where those of us who are engaged in research have an advantage because we can say if we want classrooms to be the spaces where every child has an opportunity, this is what evidence says should be happening. Right. Mm-hmm. And in addition to that, how do we say that? so that it is embraced by people who might be on a different partisan line. So there's a lot that we need to adapt and incorporate into our practices. I firmly believe that published research is one of those things, but we also have to add your podcast is another wonderful um, mechanism for that as well. And I know I've probably added way more than what you were asking, Mm -hmm. but I, I just think all of these things are very important for us to take this moment and really be able to be more proactive rather than reactive. Mm-hmm. No, that's, I think you're hundred percent correct. And I, I really appreciate you saying all that. Cause I think it really does set an agenda for thinking about how we train scholars, right? So in the article you list and review and talk about all these wonderful scholarly products and theories that are really important to center in the training of the next generation of scholars. And, and you just made a, a number of really important points about we have to start training people how to talk to schools, how to talk to communities, how to talk to families, how to talk to policymakers in ways that allows the work to live and breathe and affect the world. And, and that has to be part of the way that we train the next generation so that they're able to uh, move away from this Thorndikean kind of, you know, just sit in your office and think about learning and then publish about it. That's just right. You know, we've seen what happens when we do that. Yes. Right. Things get worse. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I really like your vision and I, I'm hopeful that we begin thinking and we continue to think about ways to incorporate those ideas from your article into training and into the ways that we advance the field. 
So you mentioned writing this article. You were encouraged to write this article for educational psychologists. And I'm, again, really grateful that you did. One of the things that I often hear is that people aren't quite sure how to write an article for educational psychologists. And so I, I like asking published authors if they have any advice or any lessons learned that they'd like to share for people who may be thinking about doing it and maybe not so sure how to write for our journal. That is a great question. And I think one of the things that I have always done when I'm going to submit a piece to a particular journal is I familiarize myself with articles in that journal, <laughs> right? It's sure, yeah. what is the format? And, yeah. and I've reviewed for the journal. So I, I've been on the end where I can give feedback to pieces and have been familiar with it because, you know, there's incredible work that's featured on there that presents theory. I mean, even its, its aims and scope is very useful for those of us who are writing other articles. And in fact, I was able to find quite a few pieces in searching in that journal that made their way into the citations, right? Because it was, it, it was very important for me to understand what had been done. Mm -hmm. And so for anyone interested in doing that, I, I can't recommend that enough. I think it's incredibly important to look at the aims and scope because it's very explicit what kind of articles are featured and, and what kind of work probably should be sent somewhere else, just because that's the aims and scope that the journal has. Mm -hmm. Reading recent work, I think, is important, but also some older pieces to see, you know, the lay of the land and, and what had been done before is also really important. So that is the number one piece of advice um, that I have. I think another one is really sitting with the material and getting feedback from people before it's submitted. Mm -hmm. You know, no matter how long I've sat with a manuscript and read it and think that it's absolutely ready to be submitted, when I get feedback from someone else that asks questions, it readily becomes apparent that things that were totally clear to me may not be clear to a reader. Mm -hmm. And I would say that at some point when it is submitted, the reviewer feedback is also incredibly, incredibly critical. One of the things that I always tell my students, just because of how I react when I first see feedback, mm -hmm. this has always been the case because some of the most critical feedback that, you know, uh, it, it hits hard and, and you've invested so much time in a piece and it feels like a personal attack, mm -hmm. <laughs> even if it's worded very friendly, I always read it through, put it away, and then I read it again a day later or so. Mm -hmm. And I always find that even the harshest of critiques take on a far more helpful tone, if that makes any sense. Sure. Because I've had time to digest and kind of process things. I think knowing that it's a process is also something that I find incredibly, incredibly helpful. Mm. Another thing, I think this is the last piece of advice because it's, it does not vary from one journal to another. This is definitely what I do. I try to respond to every single comment and do so in a way that makes it clear if it's an issue with the way I phrase things that made things unclear, how I've addressed it. I think that that helps reviewers and it certainly you as an editor might be able to speak to this as well, right? how it might help somebody see, oh, this is what they intended, or 
they didn't intend it this way and this is how the reviewer took it. So this is how they've decided to address it. So I, I think those are practices I always use when I submit a piece. Really great advice. 100% endorse. And, you know, I, I have done the, you know, read the reviews, get really upset, put it away, <laughs> come back a day later and go, ah, okay, maybe they're right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Usually there's a giant bowl of ice cream in the middle of that. Oh, I like that. I need to try that next time. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I think our listeners will really benefit from thinking carefully about what you've suggested and those are really good practices for writing for educational psychologists and all kinds of other journals too. So speaking of that, I'm interested in what you're currently working on, your current scholarship, things that you're really excited about right now. Yes, I am really excited about a book that I believe should be out for reviewers in the fall. Mm. That That's what I anticipate. I'm writing a book with Christine Sleeter. Mm-hmm. It's called CRT and its Critics. Mm. And it has been an incredible journey. I'm very excited to actually have that book out. The intended audience is teachers. Okay. And what excites me so much about it is it's an opportunity to take these issues. So Christine Sleater has written quite extensively about multicultural education. And in the 90s, when there were attacks against multicultural education, the whole issue came to be because here we're seeing these issues again. It's just name different. It's not multicultural education. It's CRT, which includes multicultural education, according to the pundits who who are attacking it. Mm -hmm. And so this book is an opportunity to explain how we got to now. What does the research evidence say? And also goes on on some of the messaging that it's really important that teachers understand because I thought it was so helpful when you provided your introduction about the news and how people are shutting down. There is quite a bit of research on in communications and political psychology and, and other fields that helps explain how people make sense of the news and what they do with it. Mm-hmm. And so being able to put all of that together is something I'm really, really excited to see through. Um, we've had a teacher give feedback. And so I'm, I'm extremely excited about how all the work that I've been doing in this area led to that opportunity. Super excited. There's a couple of research projects that I'm in the middle of. One of them is the second year of ethnic studies in different classrooms and looking at dialogic practices and more specifically critical dialogic practices mm. and how teachers learn to to use those practices to allow student voice and engagement and very rigorous content and looking at how student curiosity, student self-concept changes as an artifact of teacher practice. Mm. And another project on assessment, which is trying to validate some existing measures for use in grades three through eight to examine how sense of belonging, DeLeon Gray is, is a collaborator on this project, and how some other facets or constructs are immediately responding to teacher practices. And mm. the intended use there is to center student voice so that teachers can use that input from students to improve their instruction. So those are some of the projects that I have going on. And it's a, it's a lot of fun to actually be able to work with students and be in the schools mm-hmm. because I thrive with the work that is done in schools. So congratulations on the book. It sounds so needed. And I know books can be a challenge to write. So congratulations on, on doing that. And I'm thrilled to hear you're doing it. And I can't wait to read it. Thank you. 
So I think that's a great place to wrap it up for today. Um, I really encourage our listeners to check out your 2022 article on educational psychologists entitled, Can Educational Psychology Be Harnessed to Make Changes for the Greater Good? Francesca, thanks so much for talking to me today. Thank you for having me on today.